words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please sit. This week, I came out of a restaurant here in town sort of late at night. Um, just on Tuesday night, as that first sort of soft spring rain started to fall. Did anybody else notice that? And it was one of those moments for me when you sort of smell something that's very particular. That rain is very particular. You can sort of almost smell the green and the trees and the flowers starting to sneak out. And even sort of the heat coming up off the asphalt almost smells good, you know? And all of a sudden, even though I was in the parking lot behind Bianca Rosso, I was actually in Pennsylvania for spring after spring after spring of dinners outside and soccer fields and jerseys. And it started me thinking this week, especially in relation to this text, how strong our sense of smell is. Of all of our senses, this one, I think, has sort of the magic ability to take us back and to remind us of spaces and places that we haven't seen in a long time, of people we love who have gone before us. I thought this week, too, that my father, who's been gone for a very long time now, on Thanksgiving, it's almost like he's in the house if I use the right balance of butter and sage and garlic, right? I can sort of almost create the Thanksgiving of my childhood with the smell. And likewise, there are other people that I can remember with smells, too. Every once in a while, a woman will walk past me wearing the right perfume, and I'll be reminded of my grandmother, right? We've all had those sort of moments that take us back in time, and they loop us into bigger memories. And for me, at least when that happens, I remember where I was and what I was doing and how I felt and where I was sitting and who I was with. And so the story, as it sort of plays out for me, reminds me of who I am and where I belong and who I'm connected to. In a lot of ways, the gospel is trying to do that for us this morning. John gives us these vibrant images of this scene that plays out in Bethany, and the, the heart of it is the smell. Jesus is gathered in Bethany with his friends for this dinner. It's one of the only times in his ministry in all the Gospels, that we see him actually intentionally not really do anything. He's not preaching, he's not teaching, he's not healing, he's not performing miracles, he's not feeding people, he's really not doing anything. Instead, having dinner with his close friends and the people that he loves. Now, we know what we're about to mark next week. We know that he's about to make his way to Jerusalem and that we will travel through Holy Week with him. But they don't know that yet. And so I have to imagine that as he has this dinner in Bethany, he is sort of pulling in the strength and the love of that night. He's sort of taking every moment of that in. It's a dinner that's being given in his honor because he raised Lazarus from the dead not that long ago. And he's at the home of his very good friends. This is not the first time that we've watched Martha cook an elaborate meal and get sort of wrapped up in the details of taking care of Jesus. It's also not the first time that Mary is sort of singular in her focus. So our God is a God who is constantly doing something unexpected, who is always sort of showing up in the people that we don't expect and in the places we don't expect. 
And in this gospel story on this night, Mary rather catches that particular germ. And she does the unexpected thing in the middle of this dinner. A dinner that was celebratory and light and sort of, um, I would think they were sort of reveling in their company and their time together. They were in a place where they felt safe, a place that was home to a great many of them. And then in the midst of this sort of comfortable night, Mary does something pretty wild and unexpected. She breaks open this jar of perfume, and the text tells us that it is nard, which is an essential oil that was really important in the ancient world. It was used for the burial of lots of wealthy and powerful people. The Egyptians actually loved it so much they would keep it in these big alabaster jars so that it couldn't be corrupted by the air. They would seal it up and use it to bury the pharaohs and the powerful people. And at the time, there were enough powerful people who had been buried with this that when this smell took over the house, it would have reminded everyone there of grief and of death and of people they loved and saw no longer. And it's fair to say that the house probably smelled really good before this happened, because if Martha was cooking, she probably had the house smelling like baked bread, which I think is one of the best smells ever, and grilled lamb and herbs and olives and oil. It probably smelled really good for their relaxed sort of evening. And then this powerful smell that's a lot like musk took over the whole thing. And it would have reminded them of sadness and of sorrow. And there's two really important things about this exchange between Mary and Jesus. And the first is actually what's not in the text. A lot of the time we look carefully at what is in the text for the lesson. But what's really important about this is that <laughs> something isn't there. When Mary kneels down at his feet, when she lets down her hair, when she breaks open this jar and anoints his feet, when she uses her hair to wipe the oil back off of his feet, she breaks at least 20 or 30 religious purity laws, at least. Men and women in the ancient world, particularly observant Jews, didn't interact like this. They didn't talk to each other like that. They certainly didn't touch each other like that. Mary's touching a man to whom she's not married without permission in front of a lot of people. She's also touching his feet, and there's layers of meaning there. And then she uses her hair, which is sort of a holy thing reserved for one's husband. So she's breaking a whole chunk of really important social norms and rules. And you'll notice in the text, no one stands up and yells and screams. No one tears their clothes. No one says, what are you doing? No one says, what is going on? And that tells us something really important about the community that Jesus has built. Really important. Because even though those rules may still have been observed outside the walls of their community, within the following of Jesus, he must have created a community of equality. A community where everybody belonged, where the women had the same access to him, both spiritually and physically, that the men had. And if we think about it, it makes sense. Because we watch him throughout his ministry travel around and touch the lepers who were unclean, breaking purity laws, sitting at the table with outcasts and sinners and tax collectors, the people who had been cast out, the people who had been judged and sort of deemed unimportant. He is constantly breaking 
these social norms and these rules in order to build relationships and create community. So it makes sense that among them, in their own community, these rules didn't matter. Any other observant Jewish person, particularly a man, would have stood up the way, the way that the high priests do in the temple when they think Jesus is blaspheming. They would have torn their clothes and made a very big deal out of this moment. And the fact that they didn't tells us something very important about how the community of followers of Jesus related not to, just to Jesus, but to each other. The second part that's really important about this exchange is that it was customary in Hebrew scriptures, we hear the stories over and over again, and certainly customary in the ancient world, for kings and emperors to be anointed on the head. We have priests in the Hebrew scriptures that are anointed, prophets who anoint kings, and the oil would start on their head as a sign of their power and privilege, and it would run down their beards and onto their collars and then down onto their robes. It was a sign of their chosenness. But Mary doesn't anoint his head. She anoints his feet. His feet, which would have been dirty and rough and calloused, his feet that walked on the earth the same way that ours do, his feet that bound him into humanity, that made him part of this life, part of the dust, part of the muck in it with us. She anoints his feet. Not to set him aside because he's powerful or privileged, but to set him aside as sacrifice. Because it will be those feet that very shortly after this dinner will go to Jerusalem and then go see Pilate and Herod and eventually will go to the cross. It is those same feet that are nailed, in fact, to that cross. She anoints him, not as someone who is powerful and privileged, but as someone who will serve and sacrifice himself. Now chances are she has no idea what's about to happen, but something is calling her in this moment. Even though everyone is watching, even though it would have been a little awkward for everyone else, right? Even though they're not upset, how many of us have felt a little weird, a little awkward when we've watched an exchange between other people that is a little over the top, right? When, when their display of affection is a little too much, like, it's just a little on the nose, right? How many of us have sort of wanted to look away from that? Surely that was happening at that table. There were people who were upset by the fact that Mary and Jesus are experiencing this connection. And John tries to explain, actually, to us a little bit why Judas is upset, though I think perhaps he's just bitter and jealous. It's nice of John to try and give us a rationale, but it sounds to me just like somebody who watches this incredible display of affection and feels left out and bitter and jealous. But surely the other people at that table, some of them were uncomfortable by this wild, extravagant display of love and devotion. They must have been. And still she does it. In the middle of everything, while everyone can see her, with apparently no shame and no concern for herself or what other people are thinking about her, she pours out this perfume, and more than that, she pours out herself. Because to kneel in front of someone like that, to do that kind of service for someone that you love, you pour out your heart 
you pour out your pride. And in this moment, she has to sort of give over her life. It's obvious that she's decided to follow him and that she is all in. She's handed over the thing that is most valuable monetarily. Even a little sort of jar of this nard would today run somewhere between twenty dollars and $30,000. Even a little bit. And that was more money than Mary was ever going to make in her life. Ever. Combined. So not only does she pour out the most sort of valuable thing that she has, the earthly possession that she has, what's more important is the statement she makes. She's not worried about anyone watching or anyone judging. She has watched him love other people, and now she returns that love to him in a meaningful way. It's a mirroring of the pouring out that he is about to do in the next week and a half as he pours himself out on the way to Calvary. It's foreshadowing. It's classic literature. She's showing us just a little bit of the love that he has for us. And so this morning, I think the text asks us a couple of very specific questions. There's the placement of where you are in this story. Like any good memory that's tied to a smell, you should have a place at this table. You should have a place in that room. You should know where you sit. You might be sitting next to him trying to strain to hear what he has to say. You might also be sitting there judging Mary because she's just a little too much. You could be Judas, who feels left out, a little bitter, and a little angry. You could be like Martha, and I will confess that I usually am in the kitchen wanting to make sure that everybody has what they need. But wouldn't it be nice if all of us could choose to be a little bit more like Mary, who is devoted, who sees no obstacles, who's not interested in what anyone else thinks, except that she has seen who this man is, and wants to give up everything she has to follow him. She pours herself out at his feet, which begs the next question, after where are you? What is it that you need to pour out in these last two weeks of Lent? What in your heart, what pride, what obstacle, what frustration, what sadness do you need to pour out so that when we come to Easter, you can see the new thing that God is doing? In the text we heard from Isaiah this morning, we have a prophecy of God's people being set free. Cyrus is about to let them go so that they can go home to their homeland and experience freedom for the first time in generations. For us, this is the celebration of Easter. It's the promise of freedom. It's the promise of eternal life. It's the promise that when Jesus pours himself out and stretches his arms out on the cross, he does that in exchange for the life of the whole world. This is the new thing that God is always doing. The unexpected thing that God is always doing in the person you least expect and in the places you would least pick. What do you need to pour out in these last two weeks so that when we arrive at Easter, you can experience the extravagant, wild, new love of God? Each of us, like Mary, is called to that extravagant love for Christ and for our neighbor. That's why we started with the law at the beginning of our worship every week in Lent. There are no commandments greater than these. Where are you in this story? What do you need to pour out? 
and what extravagant love are you being called to share? Amen.